0: The difference between this team and two years ago, in my estimation, it's more of a team. They're playing four lines. Um, the young guys are feeling confident and comfortable being on the team now. Uh, Paul's done a really good job with his six defense. I think this is as good as I've ever seen Darnell Nurse play. He's simplified his game. He's moving the puck. He's not worrying about getting 15 goals. And he's become a real strong defensive force for them. So they're a legit team this time around. They're not just relying on 29 and 97.
1: From to Hughes, from to Bedard, we're your source for game one jerseys. Go to mygray.com, M-E-I-G-R-A-Y.com to start your collection today. Get real. Get it from mygray. Welcome to the NHL Wraparound podcast featuring Neil Smith, President General Manager of the 1994 Stanley Cup champion New York Rangers and longtime ESPN NHL veteran Vic Morin. Together, they share no-nonsense opinions on news and issues around the National Hockey League. Whether you're a casual or diehard fan, each episode of NHL Wraparound will leave you more informed.
2: Now, here's your hosts, Neil and Vic. Vic Morn and Neil Smith, and welcome to the NHL Wraparound Podcast. Our studios are powered by MyGrade.com, your source for game worn jerseys. And Neil, we all know how important it is to have a good first shift to start any game or any podcast for that matter. So we're going to start the show off with a couple of one timers. What is on your mind?
1: what's on my mind is uh, at the bottom of the league, and that is these teams that say that they're rebuilding and they've torn the team down to the bare bones and are going through a season with uh, a bare bones team. And I'm talking about Chicago Blackhawks and San Jose Sharks. Now, I don't know if this is the way in 2024 you rebuild a team by tearing it down to nothing. I've never seen it happen before. I've never seen uh, teams been torn down to this level uh, and particularly on Chicago where you've got this young phenom, Connor Bedard, who's going to be uh, well known around the league for the next 20 years. Hopefully um, this is how he's starting his career on a, on a bare bones team. So, I've never seen this happen before and it drives me sort of nuts, you know, because San Jose is the same way. I mean, and, and they're in a market, a small market team. Are there people actually going to the games uh, to see San Jose Sharks this year? I haven't been out there, so I can't say, but I watch all their games and, uh, man, I hope they're doing it the right way because they got a long way to go. I know, though, Vic, that I go down to the bottom and look up and I, I think you're a guy that goes to the top and looks down.
2: Well, I'm going to do that in this case because what's on my mind today is all the great fodder of who the best team in the league is, who's going to make the Stanley Cup Finals, who's going to be the eventual winner of the Cup. And I'm here to say that in late January, it doesn't matter. So if we go back to the start of the season – We had Boston and Vegas with their great starts, and they were the best teams in the league. And over the course of time, we've had Colorado, Dallas, the kings of all teams. Vancouver, the Rangers, and Winnipeg are also on that list. And now, as of Monday, the 22nd of January, TSN had the Edmonton Oilers, with their historic run of wins, had them in first The best team in the league, despite being ninth in winning percentage and 12th in total points. So for me, it doesn't matter because there are four things that you need to happen heading into the playoffs. You have to be playing well. You got to be healthy. You need a good draw of your opponent and you need good old fashioned luck. Who knows better than the Boston Bruins, who, even though they were a Brad Marchand breakaway goal with five seconds left to win that opening round series against Florida last year, didn't get it. Panthers come back from a 3-1 deficit, win the series, but also remember that the Panthers were the one team that played toe-to-toe with them during the regular season, weren't afraid to get into an alley fight with the Bruins, and at the end of the day, the Boston math. With 65 wins, 135 points equals so what? So, everybody, keep talking about who the best team is, who's going to go on to the final, but for now, just doesn't matter.
1: That's how we get through the regular season, though, Vic. we got to get through a long 82 games to get to that tournament at the end, and it's a whole different ballgame when you get to the playoffs. You're right about that. Well, the one team that probably
2: has more pressure on them heading into the playoffs than any of the 32 clubs in the league is the one that manages to suck more oxygen out of the room than any other team. And that's the Toronto Maple Leafs. So uh, for the historians out there, the Leafs last won their Stanley Cup on May 2nd, 1967. And since then... Not only have they not won the Cup, they have not been to the final. And to give a little bit of perspective there, 26 of the 31 other clubs in the league have made the finals and 20 of those clubs have won the Cup. And, Neil, nobody knows about the pressure of having a long, sustained Stanley Cup drought more than you, who is the architect of the club that ended the 54-year drought in New York.
1: Yeah, and you know it, it's funny. I'm from Toronto. Uh, obviously, at some point, was a Toronto Maple Leafs fan when I was a kid, and I'm old enough to have watched them win that three to two victory uh, against the Montreal Canadiens back in May of uh, '67. Of course, back then we thought, well, the Leafs always win it, so they'll win it again and again and again. And of course, they've never won since. I got the job in New York and uh, walked in the room for the press conference and uh, I had 50 years of baggage all around the room with me there, uh, which I didn't even think about when I left Detroit. So, uh, it was a constant in New York, constant, about the 50 years, 51 years, 52 years, 53. And finally, we ended it with 54. But it was sh- it was put in our face every game. And one of the Leaf uh, management people that I was talking to about this, and w- why isn't it brought up more often, I said, because, you know, it got shoved in our face every day. And he said, quite honestly, I think, because it's harder to chant 1967 than it was to chant nineteen four. Forty, done 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 1940 which is what we got chanted at us everywhere we went um so it it, it it is a lot of pressure uh for brendan shanahan and the people beneath him at the current time uh, brad treveling and and uh the sh- the coach sheldon keith um and i i just wonder what it'll be like in toronto when they someday do win it because uh at some point, they I guess they're going to. I don't think that this team is made up uh, in a way that shows me that they can win the Stanley Cup, to be quite honest.
2: I wanted to hit on a couple of things regarding that because, obviously, they've got some enormous contracts. And to uh, put some scope on this, their top four forwards, so that's Austin Matthews. John Tavares, William Nylander, and Mitch Marner are accounting for 48.5% of the salary cap for this year. And when the Matthews and Nylander extensions kick in next year, that's going to go up to 53.2% of the cap, despite the fact that the cap will be going up by $4.2 million next year. And to give this a little bit of perspective, the Edmonton Oilers, their top five Forwards. Connor McDavid, Vander Kane, Leon Dreisidel, Zach Hyman, and Ryan Nugent Hopkins are making up only 44%. Of the Oilers' cap this year, and it actually drops to forty-one point nine percent next year. So this is a huge problem for the front office and the Maple Leafs to try to navigate this and fill in the rest of the parts around this team to make them a contender for the Stanley Cup.
1: Well, and, and but don't forget that the, the Leafs could do something over the summer to change that all around. And and uh, uh, do they trade? One of those guys that, they, you know, what do they do about Mitch Marner? Uh, John Tavares, I think, has one year to go after this year uh, on his deal. Um, and certainly, I'm sure they're going to say to him, if you want to come back, you got to take a a much lower deal to get back into a Leaf uniform. So um, you're right in everything you said. And and uh, they're going to have to make moves in the offseason. They have to. And they have to they have to improve their goaltending. They 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 are so strong in forwards and it gets weaker as you go back towards their net. So Brad Treveling's got his hands full this summer, I think, uh, doing some dealing.
2: In your opinion –
1: How much time does
2: this group have left? Because I think they were a feel-good team in 2017. They made the playoffs. They took Washington to six games and lost that one in overtime. And everybody kind of thought they were on the up and up. But it took them seven years to actually win one playoff series against Tampa in the opening round last year. And the entire city shut down. But then they go out in five against Florida. And it just doesn't feel that this group of players is going to be able to bring it home. So how long do you stick with it?
1: Well, I I think that the first thing that you're going to see uh, after this season, if they don't win the cup, I shouldn't say if they don't win the cup, if they don't have an impressive playoff run uh, is Sheldon Keefe will be in trouble. Um, Remember that Brad Treveling, uh, you know, uh, Ked, uh, Keefe was already there when he got the GM job last summer when Dubas went to Pittsburgh. So that's not his hire. And certainly Sheldon Keefe has been given a lot of rope to get this group to the promised land. Um hasn't been able to do it but I'm not sure that anybody could uh with the with the group they've had they're very inconsistent during the regular season you don't know what you're going to get from one night to the next you don't even know if they're going to win at home most nights because they're not a, a a team that you can depend on uh the result but I think again that um uh, you're going to get One more coaching change before they start to say that this group can't do it. I I think uh, that's what's up next for the Leafs.
2: Is the difference for Keefe making the conference final, do you think?
1: I I think winning – Two rounds would be uh, uh, a little bit of a parade down Young Street. Uh, I, I, you know they've they've only won one round uh, in so long, and that that was the big thing last year was they got to win the first round, and they did. And then they went on, and I and you know they lost to Florida, but I don't think that it was a huge negative because of that first round win. Now they've got that, and and uh, the fans want the second round one. I mean, they really want the cup, but. They at least want to see, give them hope for the next year that you're making progress in the playoffs. Um, They're another team that, you know, you talked about it uh, before with your one-timer. They're good during the regular season. Uh, They're great. They're one of the top teams the last few years. Okay, we've seen that, been there. This is their fans talking now. We want to see something come April. We want to see hockey in May. Uh, we don't want to take the ice out of the uh, Scotia place uh, in uh, April anymore. We want, to, we want to keep going. So uh, I, I, I think it's going to be interesting uh, uh, to see what they do this year in the playoffs. But I think Sheldon Keefe's job uh, is completely tied to playoff success this year.
2: And at this time, we want to welcome Dewar to the show. Pleased to have them as part of NHL Wraparound.
1: And you know what I'm pleased about is that they're going to send us a free pair of jeans. I'm always in for free. And uh, the friends of mine that have doer jeans back in Canada love these things. So I can't wait to get mine and see how they are and wear them all the time. Well, I'm going to tell you a little bit about this product because Dura makes stretch performance
2: denim and lifestyle apparel for both men and women. Dura's timeless styles are unlike traditional denim. They're made from natural fibers for high stretch breathability and moisture absorption, complete with temperature regulating and antimicrobial properties to feel fresh, cool and dry. Plus, Dura value sustainability and uses 85% plant-based materials for natural softness and comfort. So here's a special offer. Upgrade your wardrobe and order your pair of Dure jeans today. Check Dure's flagship stores in Los Angeles or Denver or shop online at shopdoor.com slash NHL fan. Right now our listeners can get 50% off site-wide when you use our special URL. Shop D-U-E-R slash NHL fan. This is an awesome deal. Don't wait to get 15% off. Go now to shopdoer.com slash NHL fan.
1: I can't wait to do it myself. I'm on, I'm online every day trying to find bargains on things, and this is a great deal. So I know I got a pair coming for free, But then after that, maybe I'll use that discount. Okay, Vic, now it's my pleasure to uh, bring in our very first guest, uh, somebody who's well-known to anybody who's ever even followed hockey, and that's Wayne Gretzky. Thanks, Wayne, for doing this on The Wraparound, our very first show. Uh, I couldn't have anybody any better, uh, anybody that I appreciate and admired more than you, that's for sure, but we're called The Wraparound. And I was saying to Vic before we came on the air, The only time I remember you getting a wraparound goal was in Vancouver back in uh, 97 when you completed a hat trick against Mess and the Canucks. you remember that? That was your third goal. It was in the third period. And uh, uh, I don't know if you remember that one, but it's very clear to me. I
0: remember it. I remember for a few different reasons. One, uh, we just signed on um, a a guy that was a traveling secretary, I guess, assistant to uh, Neil and the team. Darren Blake, and for uh, my whole career, my whole life, I've always had steak and potato on the day of a game. And uh, that day after the morning skate, we went up to the team room uh, to have our twelve thirty meal. And as I got up to the uh, mm-hmm. counter, all I saw was salmon. And I turned around and I said, uh, "Where's the steaks?" And he said, "Everybody told me the best salmon in the world is in Vancouver. Order salmon." And I looked at him and I said, well, if you like your job, you better get me some steaks. I've never been to in my life on game day. <laughs> so that was his first day. And he was all nervous. And, of course, I was just kidding. But uh, I was uh, uh, a night, I remember I scored three goals and the last one was a wraparound. And now these kids, they do all these tricks and they practice it and they love it. So the kids, Nathan McKinnon, Connor McDavid, uh, Zgris, These kids have so much skill, and they practice it, and they get excited about going and doing these things in front of fans and kids, and good for them, good on them. I I just wasn't comfortable doing it. I wasn't great at it. Uh, I'm not sure Mario loved it either. Uh, It was one of those things where we had nothing to gain and everything to lose by people saying, well, he can't shoot the puck that hard. He's not that accurate. He's not that fast. But I knew all that, so (laughs) I, I, I wouldn't have been great in the skills, but good for these kids today that are doing it.
1: Well, you talk about kids, and, and one of the things that I wanted to bring up to you to get your impression on is obviously the the, the greatest kid coming into the league now is Connor Bedard. And we saw him get hurt there in that New Jersey game when he came through the middle and Brendan Smith checked him legally, but ended up breaking his jaw. And it it made me think about you and watching you go into Sault Ste. Marie and then watching you go into Indianapolis and Edmonton and then on into the NHL. You weren't a, you you weren't a huge guy. I mean, you were tall, but you weren't, you know, you weren't a heavy guy uh, by any stretch. And, um, you know, I I would think that you had to do something to adapt to uh, playing against big guys just the same way as he's going to have to. What, what do you think he's got to do to adapt?
0: Well, first of all, let me say this about Smith. First of all, it was a legal hit. Uh, he just caught him in the right spot. Uh, I don't think by any means was he trying to hurt him. But I give him so much credit for he knew that he was going to have to fight and he didn't back away from it. He said, I, I, I knew I had to answer the bell. Uh, he showed his teammates how tough he was, how respectful of the game he is. So my hat goes off, off to Smith and how he handled himself after the hit. Um, as far as I go, you know, my first day of training camp in um, Indianapolis, I walked in the locker room. I was 147 pounds. I remember standing there and Blaine and as I was getting dressed, looked at me and turned to one of the guys and said, This is our
1: savior.
0: (laughs) 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 Um, But the guys treated me great. And, you know, listen, I, I started playing at six. I played against 10 year olds at 11. I played against 12 year olds, 14. I played against 20 year olds, 16. I was playing against 20 year olds. So my point was I was never big. So all those years of playing against bigger competition and stronger players, bigger guys, um I learned how to sort of protect myself. And when I was 14, I had a junior B coach, Gene Popeil. And in those days, Phil Esposito was the greatest center in hockey. And he would get, I think one year he had over 500 shots on goal. But he would get in the middle of that box on a power play and nobody could move him because he was so big. And my coach said to me, go home and watch every game you can watch Bobby Clark. And so... I would watch Bobby Clark who played out of the corners more than behind the net. But I started playing behind the net in the corners because of Bobby Clark. And the reason I did it was because of my size. I couldn't stand in the middle of a box. I would have been on my rear end. In those days, if you got in there, guys just knocked you over. And so that's how I started playing from behind the net was basically uh, copying Bobby Clark. Wayne, we hear the term
2: generational player bantied about a lot more than when you were playing. And of course, in the post-expansion era, you've either seen or you have played against Bobby Orr, Guy Lafleur, Mario Lemieux, Eric Lindros, Alex Ovechkin, Connor McDavid, and Austin Matthews. And what is it that in your definition, makes a generational player. Is it stats? Is it is it the physique? Uh, is it a skill set that perhaps we've never seen
0: before? The combination of everything. I mean, obviously, you got to have skill and talent. Um, you know, when Gordy Howe retired, uh, we all thought, oh, "How's the game going to survive?" and Bobby Orr retired, and then Guy Lafleur retired, and Mike Bossy retired, and along came Mary Lemieux and Messier and Iserman. And then when those guys were kind of done, everybody said, well, now what's going to happen? And along came McDavid, I'm sorry, uh, Sidney Crosby, and Ovechkin. And not only were they consistent every single year, and look at Sidney this year, he's having one of his best years, and he's 37, I believe, but... Um, But they're consistent. And more importantly, they won championships. Both Crosby and Ovechkin have won a championship. And on top of that, they've been great for the NHL, and they've been incredibly wonderful in their communities, helping people who are less fortunate, being involved in helping kids that want to play the game of hockey. Um, So I think it's not just what you do on the ice. It's a combination of what you do on the ice, becoming a Stanley Cup champion, and how you fit into the community. And those two guys have been... Incredible, And so as they get older, now all of a sudden we got Leon Dreisaitl, we got Nathan McKinnon, we got McCarr, we got Matthews, and of course Connor McDavid. And not only are these guys great players, but they're great in the, for the league and they're great in their communities. And let me tell you this. I never sit here and say we were better in the 80s. These kids are better than we were 40 years ago. But that's progression. 20 years from now these kids coming in are going to be better than the guys playing today but that's how the nhl grows and that's how we make it bigger and better every year i'm, I'm just very impressed by how these kids handle themselves guys the how they play hard every single night and how they show up to be competitive and listen I, i'm a big believer in winning the stanley cup is is a big part of it also and you know mckinnon and mccarve won sydney's won um uh, Ovechkin's won. It would be nice to see Matthews win a Stanley Cup. It would be nice to see McDavid and Dreisaitl win a Stanley Cup. Uh, that would be great for them.
2: Well, it's a perfect dovetail into what I wanted to ask you about next. And of course, there's the ongoing discussion about Alex Ovechkin. Will he? Won't he? reach your all-time mark of 894 goals. But there's another player out there whose metrics at this stage of his career are actually better. And I just marvel at the ice coverage and the diversity in goal scoring in Austin Matthews. And uh, do you see him potentially reaching that 800 goal mark at some point?
0: Absolutely. And, and let me tell you, uh, I remember Gordy was traveling with us when I had a chance to break his record. And I remember we were tied and I was at dinner with my dad. And I said, you know, in a lot of ways, I feel really guilty that um, I'm going to break Gordy's record. And he said, you, you shouldn't feel that way because uh, he's such a classy person. He's, he's genuinely happy for you. And then in the next breath, my dad looked at me and he said, you be the same class as Gordie Howe because one day some guy's going to come along and break your record. And I remember looking at him going, oh, can I get it first? (laughs) So, um, you know what? It's hard. It's hard to score eight goals in the National Hockey League. Uh, But as you said, Austin's metrics, he's just been a wonderful player. And listen, it's hard to play in Toronto. He's under the microscope. It's hard for McDavid and uh, Edmonton. I love what Patterson and, uh, uh, and Miller are doing in Vancouver and Hughes. Um, those markets are hard to play in. You gotta, people demand you play well every single night, and that's what Austin Matthews is doing. shows up every game. He plays hard every night, and consequently, he's going to have a chance. One day, barring injury and staying healthy, yeah, he'll definitely have a chance.
1: Hey, Gretz, your old team, uh, the team that you're probably most known for, the Edmonton Oilers, they've turned their season around and uh, its it's been an amazing thing to watch from the beginning and, and that start that nobody could believe they were having to, to where they're playing now, which is sort of more believable because they're winning so many games. But do you, do you think this is reality now? Is this the real Oilers or, or are we somewhere in between? Um, I think it's a combination of a lot of things. First of all,
0: People are kind of forgetting. They won eight in a row, then lost three in a row, and then I think they've won 14 in a row. So there's something like 22-3 and in their last 25 games. And then if you look at the team statistically, last year they were being carried completely on their power play. This year that's not the case. They're winning a lot of 2-1 games, 3-2 games. Uh, They're winning with team defense, with some structure. Uh, My brother who works for the Oilers uh, told me yesterday that in the game the other night, uh, Derek Ryan had 20 shifts and uh, Connor McDavid had 22 shifts. And it just shows you now they're playing more as a team. You To be successful in the NHL now, you got to have four lines. You look at Vegas and Colorado, the last two winners, they they played four lines, 6D. The game is too hard. It's too fast. It's it's a big man's game. And you got to have, you can't play two guys 26 minutes a game and expect to win and i I think that's the one thing the coach brought in he's playing four lines he's he's really comfortable with the six defensemen i think kenny holland made a tremendous trade in in getting echo from uh nashville last year he gave him some size and a little bit of toughness and meanness back there and defensively he's really solid the goaltender started off a little bit shaky but you know it's hard when you have that first good year as a rookie and then the next year everybody's expectations of you is so high and for him, I think he was a little bit nervous at the beginning, and the team structure wasn't great the first 12 games. Since then, his goaltending with the team structure has been just tremendous. We don't hear any more talk about the Oilers trading to get a goaltender, and that just shows you the patience of a good general manager. He didn't panic at 2-9, and nine, which he could have. People were hollering to trade first-round picks for a goaltender, and he didn't do that. He stuck to his guns. He believed in his organization, and they've turned it around. They're a legitimate contender not only to uh, uh, make the playoffs, but maybe to finish first in their division, uh, barring uh, Vancouver uh, breakdown. I, it's going to be tough, but legitimately the way they're playing, I, I, the sky's the limit for them and good for them. And they're a little bit older now. They've had a couple years of playoff experience. Uh, they've gone into Calgary and beat them in a series. They know how difficult it is to win in Colorado. They beat LA uh, winning in LA. So, you know, Edmonton's legit. Um, the problem is Vancouver's legit. Uh, Colorado's legit. Dallas is strong. And look at St. Louis—they're coming on again, and they've got tremendous grit and they got great leadership with Braden Shen. And Bennington's proven to win a Stanley Cup. Uh, they're going to be tough too. Every team—we we said it before—all you got to do is get in. The eight teams now are so evenly matched. Um, LA proved that by winning a Stanley Cup, finishing eighth. So all you got to do is get in.
2: When I wanted to ask you, you know, a couple of years ago, when Jay Woodcroft took over, they improved their defensive structure. They made the playoffs. They had a good run to the conference finals until they uh, were swept out by the Colorado Avalanche. So this time around, there's a couple of more years of experience and your buddy, Paul Coffey is coaching the defense along with uh, Chris Knobloch, the head coach. Is this sustainable? To win 16 games in the playoffs once we get to the spring.
0: Yeah, I I think, listen, the difference between this team and two years ago, in my estimation, it's more of a team. They're playing four lines. Um, The young guys are feeling confident and comfortable being on the team now. Uh, Paul's done a really good job with his six defense. I think this is as good as I've ever seen Darnell Nurse play. He's simplified his game. He's moving the puck. He's not worrying about getting 15 goals. And he's become a real strong defensive force for them. So they're a legit team this time around. They're not just relying on 29 and 97. Uh, you got guys like McLeod that are playing well, Derek Ryan. And I still think there's a little bit more in the tank with Vander Kane. Uh, two years ago when they are in the playoffs, I thought he was their best player. And if he gets back to that sort of level, they're going to be a tough team to beat uh, because they are playing four lines now and they are more structured defensively. And their goaltender is playing with confidence now.
2: Great. I want to uh, just uh, wrap up my part of this. A uh, little bit of a question here for you. The toughest task that you've ever had in hockey. Facing Marc Messier after, after you left the Oilers, coaching the Coyotes, or adapting to your role as an analyst with TNT.
0: Well, the analyst thing was kind of easy because I can talk hockey all day long and we have a great group and Liam uh, is such a great host and I've never seen a guy more professional than him. It's been fun working with Anson Carter and of course, um, you know, uh, Henrik has been tremendous and when I did get the phone call to to, to work with them, my boy said to me, Dad, you, you got to get Paul Bizanet hired and I said, "Oh." Okay, why? Go, he, he's unreal. And so when I called him back, they said, nobody knows they have already hired Paul Bisonette. But he's just really, I always say to him, you know, he's, he's a showman, obviously, and he's good at it. But he knows more about the game than people know and realize. He's really intelligent. He studies it. He watches a lot of video. He watches a lot of games. And it's been a pleasure. It's been, I wouldn't say it's been easy, but it's been a transition that I've loved. Um, playing against Mark was really difficult. Uh, I, I said this before. I i never got comfortable ever going back and playing in Edmonton against the Oilers. Uh, the people there for 10 years treating me like their own son. Uh, and, and it was just, it was really hard. Uh, I never ever got comfortable going back there. Um, and then Coaching the Coyotes was interesting. It was a challenge because in those days, you know, we'd have a $25 million payroll in Detroit and other teams were at $75, $80 million. So I knew we were in a different mode and a different lifetime than than the other teams. So my priority and my perspective was to try to teach these kids the game, not only the game itself, but how to be professional, how to deal with the media, how to be – Uh, in the community and how to to help other people. So it was not just about, okay, I'm going to have the youngest team here, and let's win a Stanley Cup. That was, you know, in some ways a little bit unrealistic, but I wanted them to learn how to be good pros. And if I could do that, uh, it was something that I really enjoyed.
1: Well, Gretz, I – we want to thank you for coming on the show and, and being our first guest and you know this show is supposed to be about hockey because that's my background uh, and of course vic is comes from the world of espn and and you're from both worlds now <laughs> and that's why we wanted to throw some tv in there but um, man this has really been fun it's been great thank you so much for uh, giving us your time and hopefully in the future we can talk again
0: Okay. And Neil, thank you. Vic, good luck to you guys on your show. And it was my pleasure to be your first guest. Loved it. Thank you. Thanks so much. Get real, get it
2: from my gray. And Neil, I have to say that I have been on this site and I am absolutely blown away by the jerseys and the collectibles that are available on this site.
1: Uh, I've watched my gray grow from literally nothing to the company they are today, They're authenticators, their stuff is all real. They go a thousand percent to make sure that when they sell you something, it is the real deal. It came off the athlete and um, they're really amazing. Go on their site. You'll see some stuff you've never seen before. Right, and with that, we're going to transition to uh, another topic.
2: And Neil, you spent a lot of time at UBS Arena, and recently the coaching change was made with the Islanders, uh, with Lou Lamorello dismissing Lane Lambert and bringing in Patrick Waugh. And if ever there was an odd couple with the very buttoned-down Lamorello and pretty much an an open book, hard on the sleeve kind of guy like Patrick uh, Waugh, this is this is quite a pairing i
1: I've, I've watched lou's career uh from when he got to the devils uh you know many years ago uh, uh coming out of providence college and he's had quite a m- number of coaches uh, in his years with the devils and then uh, the couple of years with uh, toronto they, they only had the one coach which he didn't bring in um but then he, he's now in uh, with the Islanders. And this is his third uh, selection of coaches. When he got there, Doug Waite was there. Uh, he was let go by Lou, and then uh, Lou brings in Barry Trotz, fresh off of uh, a Stanley Cup in Washington. It was a great hire, um, gave the, the club uh, credibility right away. They did quite well in, in the uh, COVID years, uh, when you think about their playoff runs. Um, and then Barry left uh, and is now GM of Nash, Nashville, his assistant, Lane Lambert, was made coach by Lou and now has been fired by Lou a year and a half into his tenure. And uh, I was shocked that he hired Patrick Waugh. The reason I was shocked is I I wouldn't know where that connection was uh, between, as you say, the button-down Lou Lamorello, uh, been around forever, and the fiery, out-of-control sometimes Patrick Waugh. I mean, I haven't seen many players in my career that skate off the ice go behind the bench, look at the team president, and say, I'll never wear your uniform again. And he did that, and that was his uh, way of getting out of Montreal and, of course, getting uh, traded to Colorado. Um, I think you nailed it when you said they're the odd couple. I, I, it's going to be very interesting.
2: Lou Morello is no stranger to some impulse moves or just moves in the midst of a season during his tenure in new jersey he made 19 coaching moves involving 16 different individuals including himself by the way so um, i'm wondering here that we have a small sample size of games that we have seen thus far with the islanders it looks very much the same i mean is this move a caffeine shot for the Islanders to kind of jolt them and see if they can get into the playoffs, because I'm having a hard time making heads or tails out of it.
1: Well, obviously, Lou thinks that his team is a playoff team the way it was constructed last season. He, he didn't do much in the off season besides uh, sign some of their veteran players to longer contracts. Uh, he brought in Pierre Engvall, uh, who's not a game changer uh, for them. They have excellent goaltending, but they didn't do much else in the off season. So I'm sure he was disappointed in the results that Lane Lambert was getting. And I think to some extent is saying like, I want to give this team a jolt. They're good enough to be in the playoffs. Who will give them a big jolt? Well, Patrick Waugh will definitely do that. And he is, accomplishing that off the ice uh, you know their results have been uh you know lukewarm at best um but i i do think his fiery brand of uh coaching style is much different than what they've had there before so i know that at the ubs arena the fans uh, uh are dying for the team to make the playoffs they snuck in last year uh only I think because Pittsburgh folded at the end and lost two critical games to Chicago and Columbus um so the uh, Islanders made it on the very last day of the season and then uh, lost to Carolina which was expected um but I know in their their fan base is very hungry for them to be in the playoffs again this year.
2: How important it is it to create some sort of identity, because I think that's the one thing that the Islanders have been lacking the entire season. You know, they started off and it was kind of just a, uh, a dull, slow team. And then Lambert to his credit actually got them to open up their game a little bit. And they did have a little bit of an upward trajectory before finally failing to the point that Lambert uh, lost his job. So um, is that something that was going to be able to create for them?
1: I, I would think so. I mean, everywhere that Patrick Waugh has been, including his uh, stint as the owner coach of uh, Quebec Ramparts, uh, he has made an identity for those teams. His Colorado team, his first year was was excellent. Uh, and then they fell off in year two and three. Um, I think he will be able to create an identity for them. It it, it shouldn't be about the coach. And he said that himself, but um he, he, the players are the players i mean they have what they have there they're not they're not really changing so far i haven't seen much difference in the in the way the team has played uh, but again your words uh, it's a small sample size it certainly is and he needs a lot more uh, uh track to run on than what he's been given so far so uh, he he definitely will have a fiery identity and i would imagine he'll get his team fired up as well
2: Now it's time for a segment that is very special to both Neil and myself. It's the human side of the story. And it gives both Neil and I the opportunity to share some of the experiences that we have had during the course of our long careers. And today kind of has a theme of how we both got started in our respective fields.
1: Yeah, Vic, I think we both have great stories uh, and and, uh, mine is uh, very unique. Uh, I was uh, a minor league hockey player uh, in 1980, uh, and I uh, ended up uh, taking a job in New York uh, with a giftware company. I was in their sales. Um, I didn't like being out of hockey at all. So when Jimmy DeVolano uh, came to town, he, he was able to get me a press pass to go to the Nassau Coliseum and see all the Islander games, which I was forever thankful for. And while being at Nassau Coliseum and being in the press box, in the press room, um, I got to meet Jill Nee, who was uh, uh, one of the people in their PR department. Um, I noticed that the Islanders were playing at Madison Square Garden one night, and I asked her if I could go. She got me on the press list. Uh, this is where it gets to be fun. I, I go up and I'm sitting near Lauren Henning in the open press box at Madison Square Garden, which was basically in the seats. Uh, there was a lot of hecklers in the blue seats at Madison Square Garden and they started abusing Lauren Henning. The assistant coach of the Islanders and it, it became a confrontation and the uh, security actually had to take Lauren Henning down to the locker room uh, because it got that fiery and a light bulb went off in my head of, geez, I could come to all the Ranger games and watch the games and, and give them reports. They wouldn't know that I was working for the Islanders um, you know, Lauren Henning can't go to the games. They they know who he is. So Jimmy DeVolano, who was the chief scout at the time of the Islanders, uh, I asked him if, if he thought that might be something that they would uh, think about. And he asked Al Arbor. And a couple of days later, I'm sitting with the famous Al Arbor in a Burger King on Long Island. And he's got forms for me to fill out, to go to the games. And I'm shaking in my boots. Cause this is Al Arbor. I mean, he just won the Stanley cup that the, the year before. Um, so, I started going to Ranger games. He, I would take to Kenyog Park, their practice rink, the the notes, give them to Al Arbor. He liked what I was doing. He sent me to uh, Hartford and Boston and Washington. Um, I wasn't getting paid anything, and I had to quit my day job because I was doing it so much. Uh, they gave me expense money, so I, I got by on that until I went back to Toronto for the summer. Um, and the next year, they hired me uh, full-time as the Pro Scout for $10,000. And uh, that was my start in the NHL. I was thrilled. I had a job in the NHL, I didn't care if it was 10,000 kroner that they were paying me. I just wanted to be in the NHL. Luckily for me, after that uh, 82 Stanley Cup by the Islanders, Jimmy DeVolano got the job as GM of the Detroit Red Wings, and I was able to go with him there and get a whopping increase up to 22000 for my first year in Detroit. So that's my story, and I've had a blessed life and been in hockey ever since, and don't feel like I've ever worked a day in my life because I've enjoyed what I'm doing ever since.
2: I think I was one of those blue seeders. So, uh, I hope that, uh, hope that I, I wasn't one of the ones that was throwing anything at Lauren Henning, uh, which uh, certainly prompted you to get your start. Um, my start really has a lineage that goes back 40 years to the day. January 30th, 1984. And I was about a year and a half out of college, and I was trying to get into either television or hockey or both. And as fate would have it, the All Star dinner was in Jersey that year. And I was uh, brought up in Teaneck, New Jersey. And the dinner that night was at a hotel about two minutes from where I lived. So at the time, I was working on some new analytical stats and wanted to see if I could hand stuff out to people that were there. And I walked in and uh, my jaw dropped. I saw Wayne Gretzky dining with Gordie Howe and saw all the all-stars milling about. I ran into Hall of Fame broadcaster Mike Emmerich. And right before I was about to leave, I saw writer Stan Fischler off in the corner doing interviews for Sports Channel, and I wasn't a big fan of Stan's because I was a Ranger guy dating back to my first game in 1968, and Stan was covering for the Islanders. So I decided whether or not I should actually approach him, and fortunately, I had a moment of sanity, and I approached him, and I said, Stan... I am working on some statistics which involve stats combined with playing styles, and I wondered if you'd be interested in seeing my work, and Stan never looked at me, and he just gave me his number, said, call me in a week and i did and a week after that we met in new york and by the fall of 1984 i was the first statistician doing analytical work uh, analytical work for a uh, television broadcast which was for sports channel and was for the new york islanders as well and i did that for 3 seasons and i also picked up the devils as part of some of my work and um in the fall of 1985, I did the first of two books with Stan and his late wife, Shirley, called Breakaway. So, uh, if it wasn't for Stan, uh, I I would not have been able to make the jump to ESPN and, like yourself, uh, I've had a, a tremendous life in hockey and in the media and 40 years later, Stan and I stay in touch. Um, he is living in Israel right now and in December, ESPN SPN just did a spectacular piece on him uh, living in Israel while the war is going on there. So, Stan, stay well, stay safe. And on behalf of so many of us that have gotten our starts through you, thank you.
1: Just to add on to that, Vic, I've been in New York a long time and been around hockey in New York a long time and Everybody loves Stan Fischler. Whether you're a Ranger fan, a Devil fan, an Islander fan, everybody knows Stan Fischler. Everybody reads his stuff. He's been part of the hockey scene in New York for long before we were around it. So uh, uh, I I second everything you said about Stan Fischler. I guess uh, we got to s- go now and say goodbye and uh, thank My Gray for sponsoring us. Uh, Thanks to all our listeners. Please don't forget to subscribe. That's really important to us. Uh, we're on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Uh, join us again next Tuesday for our next show, uh, which is when really the NHL stretch drive kicks off. So uh, for Vic Morin and Neil Smith, thank you for being here. Thanks for joining us on the NHL Wraparound Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date on all the NHL action.